Hi, you are now listening to a sermon from Harvest Community Church in Hoffman Estates, Illinois. Today you will hear a sermon from Pastor Dave Lee, so without further ado, here he is. I'm not the tallest guy in the world, so I apologize if my standing on the floor makes it hard for you to see me. I'm not going to stand up there. I feel like I'm a million miles away from you guys when I'm up there. I I just don't like it. This morning... The word comes from John 13, verses 1 through 17, and it's a passage that is likely to be pretty familiar to many of you. If you've spent more than a year in the church, you've probably come across this story before. And so I'm going to give you a warning right now. If you think that you've heard this foot-washing business before and you're already kind of preemptively bored and you're going to start tuning out, let me just say this. You can fall asleep if you have so sacrificially and selflessly served the people you say that you love that every last one of them say, there's nothing left for this person to learn. Man, have I been served and selflessly attended to by this person. If you've graduated from the school of sacrificial service, please catch up on your sleep now. And we will just admire you from a distance going, dang, it's amazing. That person's already done and arrived. They got it. The rest of us, let's try to bear into this word, because this week, looking at this text, it's very familiar for me. I've preached it many times, but some things came to light that really challenged me at a personal level. And I want to share some of those things with you today. John chapter 13, verses 1 through 17. Here we go. It was just before the Passover feast... Jesus knew that the time had come for him to leave this world and go to the Father. And having loved his own who were in the world, he now showed them the full extent of his love. The evening meal was being served, and the devil had already prompted Judas Iscariot, son of Simon, to betray Jesus. Jesus knew that the Father had put all things under his power, and that he had come from God and was returning to God. So he got up from the meal, took off his outer clothing, and wrapped a towel around his waist. After that, he poured water into a basin and began to wash his disciples' feet, drying them with the towel that was wrapped around him. He came to Simon Peter, who said to him, Lord, are you going to wash my feet? Jesus replied, you do not realize now what I am doing, but later you will understand. No, said Peter. You shall never wash my feet. Jesus answered, Unless I wash you, you have no part with me. Then Lord, Simon Peter replied, Not just my feet, but my hands and my head as well. Jesus answered, A person who has had a bath needs only to wash his feet. His whole body is clean. And you are clean, though not every one of you. For he knew who was going to betray him. And that was why he said not everyone was clean. When he had finished washing their feet, he put on his clothes and returned to this place. Do you understand what I've done for you? He asked them. You call me teacher and Lord, and rightly so, for that is what I am. Now that I, your Lord and teacher, have washed your feet, you also should wash one another's feet. I have set you an as an example that you should do as I have done for you. I tell you the truth. No servant is greater than his master, 
nor is a messenger greater than the one who sent him. Now that you know these things, you will be blessed if you do them. Amen. That's the word of God. You know, if you were to ask me, what makes Christianity different from every other world religion? There's a lot that could be said, but I think the answer reduces down to simply this one name, this one person, Jesus Christ. The thing that makes Christianity distinctive is simply Jesus. He is extraordinary and remarkable in every possible way. I have for a couple decades now actively studied the life of Jesus Christ, and I think he's unbelievable. I've also studied almost all the other major world religions, and I find that Jesus portrays for us a picture of God that is starkly different than every other religion has pictured God. Now, this is not scientific proof, but there's something deep in my heart and probably in yours too that says, if there is a God, he must be a certain way. He should be good. He should be kind and patient. He should be lovely and beautiful. He should not resemble the people I can't stand down here on this fallen world. He should resemble or be the best of us. He should be better than all of us. And when I look at Jesus... I don't see a God who is a curmudgeon, a grump, a judge, an egotist. What I see is somebody who pictures for me everything that I instinctively know is beautiful. And I think if there is God, he must be like this. Jesus in flesh and blood pictures for us the God who in our instinctive hearts we know should be God. Now, you're not going to win any forensic debates with what I just told you, okay? I mean, I haven't given you a bulletproof piece of logic, but I'm telling you something about our hearts. And Jesus, in this particular passage, demonstrates yet again how remarkable and how different he is than us, and certainly than how different he is than any other God that the world has portrayed. The first thing I see here is that Jesus demonstrates his love. And let me just pause there for a second. It's love 101 to say this, but I want you to reconcile these words with the way you actually practice love. Love is not real until it is demonstrated. It is worth literally nothing to make a claim of love. That is so... I can could, I could do it right now. I love each and every one of you to the point of death. I love you. Seriously, I do. I mean, I would die for each one of you. I love you so much. Right now, cut my arm off. For you guys, go ahead. I mean it. See how easy that is? Try it. Try it. Go. Turn to the person next to you and just tell them you love them. So, it's so easy. People did it 40 times in front of me in a church setting with white and black on. And they said, yeah, I really love this person sitting. It's so easy to say, isn't it? But love is only real when it's acted on. I think even a parrot could say the words, I love you. So Jesus doesn't just tell us he loves us. He actually demonstrates his love. And I love the way the Apostle John, in his memories, records this event. He says, Jesus, having loved them, meaning all through his life and ministry, he had loved these men well. For three years, he had really shown love. But he goes, now, in this last day of his life here on earth, he shows them, listen to this phrase, 
the full extent of his love. The full extent of his love. Let me ask you a question. Everyone in this room, look at me. Have you ever demonstrated the full extent of your love for anyone? I I mean the full extent. The kind of love where I'm done. There's nothing more to demonstrate. This is as far as I can go in this love thing. Here you are. You have everything I can possibly give you. See, I believe that our relationship with Jesus is a journey of underestimation. Here's what I mean by that. Every time we think we get him, every time we think we understand Christianity, every time we're tempted to say, I've pretty much grown up, I get it, I'm pretty good at all this, at that moment, Jesus will show us something to reveal that we have yet so far to go. That we always seem to underestimate the great standard of Jesus for goodness, humility, patience, love, and forgiveness. Bobby Uman last Sunday in this very room demonstrated that from the word of God. Matthew 18, remember that? When Peter, thinking that he has far exceeded even the law's requirements, says, Lord, how many times should we forgive? Seven times? And he wanted a gold star and a blue ribbon. Jesus is like, of all the 12, you, Peter, are the most forgiviest. You are, you are the man. He wanted to hear those words. And Jesus goes, man, you're so proud of yourself right now, aren't you? You are the, the valedictorian of this small band of disciples. But you've got it so wrong. If you think seven is the ceiling, let me just, bam, kick it up a notch. It is 70 times seven. Go and chew on that for a little while, Peter, who has arrived at the graduate school of forgiveness. We're always underestimating What Jesus means by words like love, patience, forgiveness, humility. And so I'm not asking you to be discouraged by that or to feel judged and belittled by that, but to say, don't ever settle. Don't ever think, yeah, I got this love thing down because I promise you in this lifetime, on this side of death, you don't have it down. You and I will always have a long way to go in this journey of learning what God is like and what he wants us to be like. Graduation is so far above us, all of us will be in summer school until we get to heaven. Are you feeling that? So Jesus shows them the full extent of his love. And in another passage, Jesus says something like this. This is my commandment, that you love one another as I have loved you. If you stop right there, you're like, oh, yeah, I, I already do that. What else you got? But you go, Hold on, I'm not done. Greater love has no one than this. That someone lay down his life for his friends. Do you see it? Oh, yeah, I'm already loved. Oh, no, hold on, though. Here's what I think of as great love. Is that you will actually lay down your life for the people you love. That actually, I heard a sermon on that said exactly that way in high school. And it got me to take out the garbage. Because here's what the pastor said. How dare you tell your mother you love her when you can't even haul out the trash for her? What kind of an empty claim of love is that? It's high school logic, I know. But it got to me. I'm like, oh, dang. That is so right. We always underestimate what love is. And I think there's this beautiful story I came across in the news recently. It's about a year old, but the story almost had me down in tears. I, it just, this was such a moving story for me. I want to introduce you to two guys. Maybe you remember the story from last year in this late summer of 2010. This is Ryan and Chad Arnold. They're two brothers, grown men, 34, 38. 
They live outside of the Denver area. Chad, the one on the right, the older brother, works for Compassion International, and Ryan is an orthodontist who is an active Christian, loves everything outdoors, is one of those guys who's born just healthy as a horse. You know, just he's so vibrant. Well, Chad, the older brother, contracted a disease called primary sclerosizing cholangitis, which is an incurable terminal liver disease involving inflammation of the bile ducts. There's no cure. You get it, you're going to die. And Chad lived with it for a while, but it's, and he got his name on the transplant list, but it was going to take years before his name came up on the list. And he'd taken a turn for the worse, and he was going to die within probably months. They did a search for possible matching live donors, and it turned out that his brother Ryan was a good match. And at their family reunion... They got the little text message that says, the test came in, Ryan, you're eligible. You can donate 60% of your liver so that your brother Chad can go on living. Ryan didn't even bat an eye. He said, it's a no-brainer for me. I know he'd do it for me. I love my brother. He's got a lot of life left to live. I'm going to do it. And so on July 28th, they went in for surgery at the University of Colorado Hospital. And everything went well. Ryan, obviously, as the donor, went first, and they took out 60% of his liver. They stabilized his body, and then they washed it carefully, brought it to the next OR, and put it into his brother, Chad. And the day after, everything looked great. Chad's jaundiced appearance went away. He looked healthier and felt healthier than he'd been in years. This is, in fact, a picture of Ryan wheeling himself in after the surgery to Chad's room to see how his brother's doing. The younger brother gave 60%. He gave more of his liver away than he was going to keep for himself. That was July 29th, this picture. On August 1st, suddenly something happened and Ryan took a turn for the worse. He's back in the hospital. He's in great pain. And then he went cold blue. They resuscitated him. And then he went into a coma. And on August 2nd, Ryan, the healthy younger brother, went to be with Jesus. He died. That happens in less than 0.5% of organ donations, that the donor himself will die. Chad, at first, wasn't told right away what happened because how can you bear that kind of guilt and pain? Ryan left behind a young wife and three boys, ages one, four, and six. And in the pre-op room, just before they went in, Chad had walked over to Ryan and hugged him and said, I owe you my life. I love you. And that was the last that they said to each other. And I, I think about this story, and I think it was always a possibility. You never take any surgery lightly. When they tell you no surgery is without risk, You better believe what they're saying. Every time you go under, you go under the hands of God. There's no guarantee. Not every story just has a magical, automatic, happy ending. Sometimes you think this is just going to be a magnanimous act and it will cost you your very life. But I I believe, and everyone in Ryan's family believed, knowing the man as he lived, that even if he knew this would happen, He wouldn't have changed his mind. 
Chad wrestled with terrible guilt. He said, if it was the old me, I would have jumped out the hospital window and killed myself. I can't bear this. But now he says he is gripped by a sense of gratitude over this gift that his brother gave him and is seized by this conviction that he must make his life count because it cost his brother his life to give him these extra years. And when I read that story, when I hear that the first journal entry that Chad, the surviving brother, wrote was simply this verse, 1 John 3.16. This is how we know what love is. Jesus Christ laid down his life for us, and we ought to lay down our lives for our brothers. I mean, my God, haven't you heard those words before and they just bounced off your back? Yeah, of course we should. But do you realize that a day may come when you have that choice to make? No one expects to find themselves in that place. And let me tell you something else. I believe with all my heart that our world is changing. And this bubble of prosperity and security, which we've enjoyed as Americans for centuries, is probably going to change radically in our lifetime. It may seem like fiction that someday you may have to make a life and death choice where you give up your life so that someone else can go on living. But I'm going to tell you, and someday maybe these words will ring prophetically in your memory. I believe for some, perhaps many of us, in this lifetime, we will face that difficult choice. And Jesus will bring up this verse before us and say, do you really understand now what love is? The kind of love we call the love of God. It is not a love made up of empty words and easy promises. It is love that gives away more than it keeps. Do you realize Ryan gave away 60% of his liver? And in the end, he gave up 100% of the rest of his days on earth. Easy to talk about love. The standard of God is so high. And it's love demonstrated that is love realized. I believe that it is the thousand little acts of sacrificial love which prepare us for moments like that. I believe it's the death that dies a little death that will die the big death one day for others. Another thing I see in this text is that Jesus redefines greatness. You know, that's interesting. In Luke's account of the Lord's Supper, the Last Supper in the upper room, he records things that John does not record. John had a different purpose in reflecting on his memories, and so he didn't include everything. But Luke, being a historian and a physician and a very detail-minded guy, recorded everything. And look what Luke remembers from that room, the stories he, he gathered in his research. A dispute also arose among them as to which of them was to be regarded as the greatest. This is in the upper room now. You understand the setting is the Last Supper. And he said to them, the kings of the Gentiles exercise lordship over them and those in authority over them are called benefactors. Literally translated, friends of the people. 
But not so with you. Rather, let the greatest among you become as the youngest, and the leader as one who serves. For who is the greater one, the, the, who, the one who reclines at the table or one who serves? Is it not the one who reclines at table? But I am among you as one who serves. Do you realize how offensive it was that on the eve of the Lord's death, his disciples were at a supper table arguing over which one of them was going to be the greatest in his kingdom? I mean, I don't mean to be crass, but that's like sitting at your wife's deathbed talking with your best friend about who you want to marry next. Do you realize how offensive this was? These guys, if they'd known the truth, would have been horrified at what they were arguing over. And here's Jesus quietly observing all this. And at some point, he has mercy on them. He can't let them continue along this. Have you ever watched people saying something so horrible and you're just like, I got to step in. It's not that I'm just offended. I got to spare you from further incriminating yourself. You need to stop talking now. It's too much. And so Jesus steps in and says, listen. I'm watching you, I'm listening to your conversations, and it is so messed up, you just have no idea. Let me tell you what greatness in my kingdom will look like. Now, here's the interesting thing. Back in those days, the streets were pretty filthy. John and I recently went to Uganda, which for most part is an undeveloped nation. Even in the city of Kampala, we were walking over large cow turds and little rivulets of urine and sewage running along a little divot on the side of the road and you know i mean if you weren't paying attention you'd be like walking just right into the sewage i stepped in things that i don't want to mention i was in addis ababa at the airport and i just walked in the bathroom in these crocs open hold crocs and i stepped in about an inch and a half of water that had very questionable cleanliness and i'm like what is this and your feet get pretty dirty in a place that doesn't have paved roads and shiny wood floors And so when you walked into someone's house, it was customary as an act of hospitality that a servant at that house, as you entered, would wash your feet for you. We do this every time our dogs come in from a walk. There's baby wipes at the door. We wipe their feet because you don't want that outside dirt coming in. I'm telling you, those feet got nasty. It was such a bad job that even Jewish slaves were not allowed to do this. It was reserved only for Gentile slaves. Like, I know you're a slave, but you're one of us, man. We can't let you do this. It's too foul. What's interesting is maybe because it needed to be a secret meeting, this upper room supper had no attendant on duty. And so as they walked in, they would have seen a basin for washing filled with a little water and a stack of towels right there by the door. And basically the idea was self-service. But they were so used to having their feet washed, they walked in like, what is going on? And they all walked right past it looking. And I'm sure this thought occurred to them. One of us should probably wash the master's feet at least, right? I mean... But we know our master. Once I say, hey, master, can I wash your feet? He's like, great idea, Peter. Why don't you wash everyone's feet? <laughs> and based on this argument they're having, you can tell that's not where their heads are at. They're not looking for ways to become less, to serve more. They're thinking, man, we don't know what's about to happen. This is a big weekend. We can feel the electricity in there. Something's about to go down. Jesus has been talking about a kingdom that he's going to inaugurate. In their minds, an earthly kingdom with a new administration and a government. So they're going, boys, this is the hour. We've been waiting for this. 
Which one wants to be secretary of the treasury? Which one's going to be vice president? And, and they're trying to divvy up positions and jockey for who's the greatest among us? In what order should we fill in his new administration? This is their mindset. Wrestling for position of priority. And this little chess game of pride and privilege they're playing has so blinded them that they've completely neglected to wash their master's feet. And they were definitely not going to lower themselves and wash one another's feet. Because right there you're like, all right, I guess I'm the postmaster general. Because if you wash everyone else's feet, how could you possibly be the second in command? It reminds me of a time when I lived with three other guys at an apartment in college. And right away, you know, that was a nasty place. Anytime four young men live together on a college campus, disgusting. I mean, almost it should be condemned. You go to the bathroom and there's like things crawling around behind the toilet, mushrooms that talk, things like that. It's gross, right? So I remember one time we had a particularly juicy garbage bag. It was white, plastic. You could tell there's a lot of vegetation, really mushy stuff, some little liquid dribbling. And somebody had closed it, tied it up, and thrown it right in the, the hallway by the entrance to the apartment next to the door. The message is, I tied it up, I put it out here, someone else take it to the dumpster. Well, all the roommates saw it. We saw that it was leaking smelly fluid by our shoes, so we all moved our shoes away from the path of the leak. We could smell it. The offense of that odor was so great we would actually hold our breath before running into the apartment, but nobody took that garbage out. We all just walked past like, <laughs> whatever, I ain't doing it. And we act like it wasn't there. And pretty soon we were living like animals. It smelled so bad, people stopped visiting us. For weeks, I'm telling you, this smelly piece of garbage became a symbol for our pride. No one was going to be the one to degrade themselves and take it out. I don't even remember which one of us took it out. Probably the one with the weakest stomach. But that's what's going on here. I'm not washing your feet, Peter. Forget it. That would threaten my place in this hierarchy. So you can imagine the horror then. When after the meal was already being served, you know how they ate? They reclined at a table like a, like a Korean table, you know, about six inches off the ground. They had mats placed on the floor. There's no chairs. And they would lean on their left arm and pick food off the table and lay across with their feet tucked kind of under the lap of the guy next to him. So if the guy has stinky feet, you can't ignore it for very long in a meal setting like that where the, this foot is all up in your mess. It's like right there. And you're like, oh, gosh. It's ruining their appetites. And in the midst of this now, in almost slow motion, without a word, Jesus gets up from the table, starts taking off his outer garment. He is now basically in underpants, no shirt. This is the slave's dress. This is how slaves are made to dress, to keep them, even in their physical dress, to remember their place. You dress you like children because you are no better than children. You're not real people. And that's what Jesus does. He puts aside his cloak. He leaves his place of honor, wraps a towel around his waist. And can you imagine the first guy? They can't even talk at this point. They're so ashamed, so shocked by this. And now Jesus begins washing their feet. Once again, Christianity is a journey of underestimation. You think you know God. You think you understand what love and humility and service are. You, you think you've heard these words and understood them. And they had served plenty up to this point. These are not idle men. They have done things for the Lord. 
But Jesus goes, you don't understand servanthood yet. So let me show you how far off the mark you still are. And it shocked them. And it humbled them. It broke them. They thought they were good, good enough to have earned a spot on his government. And he says, you guys don't have any clue what my heart is yet. So let me show you. You know what blows my mind is among the people's feet that he washed that night was Judas Iscariot. Who he already knew was going to betray him. If you knew that one of your best friends was going to betray you and that would result in your arrest, torture, and unjust murder, would you wash his feet or would you hold his head under that water instead? Which would you do? See, some of us have had people wrong us. And at the verge of forgiveness, they do one more thing. You're like, that's it. Forget it. Game over, man. Judas had never been a team player. He'd always been arguing about the money, about people wasting their money on lavish things. And it was clear to everyone else on the team, Judas is not really one of us. He wears the jersey, but this guy, he's, come on, he's not really playing with us, is he? And so people were probably historically annoyed with Judas all the time. This is the final act, right? He's going to betray him, and yet Jesus kneels before Judas Iscariot. And along with everyone else, as he picks the flakes of cow dung off in between his toes, he rubs his dirty feet till they're clean, and he dries them gingerly with a towel wrapped around his waist. If you think you understand our Christian call to forgiveness... That's the picture right there. If you've ever said to someone, that's it. I can't do this anymore. You and I are done. I can't even be in the same group with you. You have pushed me past the point of forgiveness. What you have done is unforgivable. And don't don't take this to mean I'm belittling your pain. That person you said that to probably did things that you can't even say in public. But if you have reached that point ever in your life with anyone, you need to look again at Jesus to understand who we are as Christians. I know you have pain. I know that on a human level, you should never have to forgive them. But Jesus kneels before his betrayer and says, this is the picture I want to show you before I leave because anything less than this will tear this world apart. Unless you see this picture and know that this is always the standard, you will not hold your family together. Your marriage will never last. The countries will be at war forever. This is love. Let me show you. And he gets on his knees and says, forget your titles. Stop trying to jockey for position. You know what, guys? No one pays attention to a chauffeur, do they? The guy drives a really nice car, but who looks at the chauffeur? You only pay attention to the person coming out of the back seat, the one being served, being driven around. In our class status conscious world, with platinum membership, preferred status, first class this. I, I remember hearing about a lifetime up in the northern suburbs in one of those hoity-toity richer neighborhoods. They have a new thing called Onyx membership. It's so expensive, no one can join, man. That's how they keep the crowds from flooding in. That amazed me. I was like, wow, that's kind of ingenious. We live in this kind of world. Nobody aspires to be lower. Everyone dreams of greatness. 
Jesus says, that's understandable. But let me define for you what true greatness actually is. If you think I'm great, says Jesus, understand that my life's whole mission was not to be served, but to serve. And to give my life as a ransom payment for many. See, only a person who's very secure in who they are can be a servant without it costing them everything. We as college students could not risk the hit to our identity if we were the first one to carry the garbage out. Because our identity was built on angling for superiority over our brothers in that house. And I'm not going to let him beat me out. So let's see how long we can go before somebody takes out that garbage. That's the way the world works. Chest thumping. It looks so monkey-like, so childish, but we all do it. We all want to be strongest, biggest, fastest, best. We want to be great. And Jesus says, you don't even know what true greatness is. Only the truly great, the truly secure, can choose to serve without costing them everything they have. Look what it says. Jesus had no illusions about who he was. He didn't forget for a moment that he was their master. He always knew. He got up from his place at the table, took out his, off his outer garments that gave him his rank. But when he was done washing their feet, what did he do? He put the clothes back on, resumed his rightful place at the head of the table. And in verse 3, it says, Jesus knew that the Father had put all things under his power and that he had come from God and was returning to God. He understood that this was a climactic moment. He was about to be vindicated publicly. In a few days, he would rise from death and be demonstrated to be the Son of God. This was his greatest hour when he did not need to take anything from anyone. And up to the last breath of his life, he was consistent to his calling. He served rather than being served because he knew who he was. It's only the insecure who, after scoring a touchdown, need to run all over the field. Goes, I did it just in case you didn't notice on public television with all the replays and close-up angles. That was me doing that. I did it. I did it. And this is what the insecure have to do. Look at me, everyone. I'm awesome. It's only the insecure heart who has to say or think things like, do you know who I am? Real question is, do you know who you are? Why do you need to keep repeating that and telling us who you are? Don't you know? Do you really need my praise and admiration to give you a sense of good, of well-being and pride? Hasn't God himself who made you already told you you're worth something? Why are we so insecure and small and think that somehow while we're doing it, we're becoming great? If you need a nice car to attract a woman's attention, you either got a very, very shallow woman or you have overestimated yourself grossly. Are you feeling me? We think we're great because we have achieved all these great things. And Jesus says, you have no idea how true greatness is measured. So how does your heart stack up to this radically redefined definition of greatness? That he who is greatest in this kingdom is not the one who stands in front. I, I get amazed to this day. People won't let me take out trash bags or get my own food at a buffet. Like, pastors, you sit down. You're not. Supposed. 
I'm like, why? Am I an invalid? No, you're the pastor. And I think this shows us how much we've misunderstood what authority and rank and power mean. It is precisely me who should be taking out the garbage. Whoever should be greatest in the kingdom won't act like a master. He will act like a servant. And if our master did it, then it's not too good for us, right? Listen. True greatness in Christianity will never be measured by being impressive to other people. Ever. True greatness in Christianity will always be measured by the degree to which you can humble yourself before others and serve because you have an unshakable sense of who you are in Christ. And if you don't have that, you'll spend your whole life foolishly, embarrassingly, trying to be cool and beautiful and rich and powerful. And all the while, every time you turn your back, people will look down on you, envy you, make fun of you, disdain you. And you will only be great in your own mind. Don't take that as a rebuke, okay? There are people in this church who are, for me, living pictures of what Jesus is describing here. If you don't feel the need to be rebuked, don't be. But I'm simply telling those who struggle with insecurity, true greatness in God's kingdom is measured by a servant's heart. Let me give you one last thing. Jesus then calls us to be just like him, to follow his example in this. You know, Jesus comes to Peter, and Peter, you know, I heard this one commentator say, the only time Peter ever opened his mouth was to change feet. <laughs> I love that phrase. <clears throat> if you didn't get that, ask somebody after service. They'll explain it to you. Peter's a guy who talks first and then thinks second, Okay. And Jesus, I mean, this is like a, you want to know the definition of awkward? It's that room right now. And then he he gets up to Peter and he looks up at Peter and Peter's horrified. He's like apoplectic. And he goes, Lord, are you going to wash my face? Are you going to wash my, no way. And Jesus says to him, shut up, Peter. You just don't understand. I have to do this. And listen, even after Jesus corrects him, listen to what Peter says. No, you will never wash my feet. Now, listen, we look at that and go, oh, Peter's so humble. Look at that guy. He's like, if only we could be like Peter. I think I even preached that before. I see it differently now. Because you have to read it in the context of Luke's account when they're arguing over who will be greatest. Let me tell you, Peter was in the top three, all right? Everyone knew Peter was one of the favorites. He's, if anyone's going to get the prize, it's going to be one of these three guys. Peter, James, or John. As always, hey, the rest of you mopes, sit here and sweep the floor. Peter, James, and John, come with me for a special treat. It was always like that. I'm sure Andrew, right? Peter's brother's like, hey, I'm the one who introduced all you jokers to him. How come I'm always left out? It sucks. I have four guys originally. Three of them always. Get. So that's, that's, and so Peter's like, you have to understand, this is not just humility, being vocalized. His protest was an act of pride. Here's what Peter's really saying. Lord, these other losers might have let you wash their feet. Oh, no way. No, not me, brother. You're never going to wash my feet. I know better. This is a test, isn't it? Just to see, like Gideon says, which one of us is going to be vice president, vice messiah, whatever you call it. I know you're testing us, and so I'm not going to let you touch my feet. And he was expecting Jesus to go like this, the, the slow clap. 
Let this be a lesson to all the rest of you losers. Yeah, my hands are filthy. Are you let me wash your feet? It was only when I got to Peter that Peter goes, Lord, you can't do this. Instead, what does Jesus say to him? You fool. Do you understand what I'm doing here? I know you don't see it now, but without me serving you by cleansing you, you will have no share in my life. You cannot hang out with Jesus without being cleansed by Jesus and imagine at all that you have any share with him. This is not a club like Costco where you pay a due and you just get to slip in. There is a ritual at the beginning of this journey that is indispensable. Without the cleansing he gives us at the cross, both once for all time in salvation and again and again every day for the rest of our lives, unless he serves you and you led him, you have no share in the life with him. There is so much to say about this interchange between Peter and Jesus, but I, I don't have the time to go into it, so I'll summarize it this way. Jesus is teaching prospectively ahead of time. Peter, what I'm going to do for you tomorrow on the cross is an indispensable part of our relationship. If I don't do this for you, you cannot be with me. And again, in an act of pride, I believe, Peter says, oh, well, then give me more than the rest of those guys. You just wash their feet. I want my hands and my head washed too, Lord. I want to be first. What Jesus says to him is, look, you need me to serve you by cleansing you before you can ever serve me by doing anything else. Christianity is a journey of sacrificial servanthood. That's what it's about. If you misunderstood it to mean a journey of growing prosperity, getting your GPA in order, your kids grow up nicely, you marry a supermodel. If you thought it was that, you've got it wrong. Christianity is a lifelong journey of sacrificial servanthood. I owe Tim Keller for this next illustration. I'm going to wrap things up with this illustration. <clears throat> it's a beautiful illustration because it combines two of my favorite things, football and Jesus. Not in that order. Jesus and football. <clears throat> Tim Keller talks about a phrase that comes from the football world called taking the hit. Taking the hit. Here's how it happens. You're the quarterback. You're deep in the pocket. None of your receivers are open yet, and it's been a while. Three, four seconds. You're running out of time, and then you see someone about to break free. Your wide receiver's bolting for the end zone. If you have just a few more seconds, you can get off a good pass, but out of the corner of your eye, you see a defensive end has scrambled around one of your guards, and he's coming for you. He's 300 pounds, and he's barreling down. He's got hunger in his eyes. Pause for a moment right there. A lot of individual failures have added up to that moment. The wide receiver was supposed to hit his guy, juke right, and then bolt, but he probably didn't, and therefore it's taken him longer to break free than it was supposed to. The offensive lineman was supposed to hold his guy back, but he didn't. He missed his mark. And as a result, the guy blitzing came right around him. The coach was supposed to read the, the defense and reset the offensive line properly. He didn't do it. Whoever was recruiting offensive linemen failed to get the guys who know how to stop a rusher. 
Whoever was representing that guy in his contract negotiations, he said, look, I need more money. Forget it. Fine, I'm going to let this guy go. A lot of failures added up to that moment of crisis and something needs to be done. They score, they win. And so the quarterback in the pocket has to make a very important decision. What do I do? Do I, let, do I wait to get a good pass off, let this 300-pounder bury me, and maybe win the game, or do one of these things? Oh, God. Have you seen quarterbacks do that? Oh, my goodness, and they crumple before anyone even hits them. And as fans, from our living rooms with our fat butts on our fat couches, going, come on, Jay, hang in the pocket. Don't, not yet, not yet, just wait. Throw it when it's right. We're saying it, but listen to us. When are we ever going to step onto an NFL field? We can't do what Jay Cutler's doing. No matter how much you criticize him, you couldn't do one day, one minute of his job. And so vicariously, we go, do this, do this. And we're waiting. We wish we could reach out with remote control, make him do it like in, in Madden football, right? Just do it. Just wait. If you see your quarterback take a dive to save himself, don't you get disappointed? You're like, oh, Aaron Rodgers would never have done that. Why is Cutler like that? But when you see Cutler hold, get off a good pass. Earl Bennett jumps, dives, catches, both feet in the inbounds, score. All of a sudden, Jay Cutler's our hero. He has the gratitude of an entire city for doing what we could not do, and he had a choice. Do you understand that Jay Cutler this year will earn, I don't know if he'll earn, he'll make, he'll take home $22 million. Do you know how much Earl Bennett's going to make for catching that ball? Just under $390,000. Talk about a disparity in salary. How would you like to work with a guy who makes $22 million while you're making $390,000 and you're getting beat up and battered and this guy's going, oh, I don't want to get hurt. You're like, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to... Punch a hole in your tires in the parking lot. So when the quarterback, with so much more to lose, does what only he can do, and he takes the hit because he loves his city, he loves his team, he loves winning, he wants the victory, and only he can make that difference right now. But if he chooses to do it, he's got to take a hit. There's no easy wins. Someone's going to get hurt. And he will pay for all the individual mistakes that led to that moment of crisis. Why are we saying all this? You you see where we're going from a mile away. I mean, Jesus took the hit for us. He was in the garden, and if we could have eavesdropped, and he's going, Lord, Father, I'm so agitated and troubled. This cross thing, if there's any other way, and I'm sure we'd be going, no, 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 no. No, there's no other way. you got to do it. Hang in there. Go to the cross. Without it, we have no hope. You have to do this for us. And he's agonizing and he's praying. And you're watching. Oh, please, please, please decide to move forward. And he rises. And he lets himself be arrested, insulted, belittled, stripped naked, tortured, beaten cruelly, and killed. And as he hangs on that cross, he could have called down legions of angels, but he holds his tongue in silent service. He takes the hit for us. I'll bet you, 
following Monday, all the True Bears fans seeing Jay Cutler take the hit and win the game. We'll have an extra spring in our step. Maybe we'll be thinking, where do I take the hit? Where do I, how can I be like that? Because that's what Jesus does. He says, look, do you understand what I've just done for you? Do you know what I'm about to do for you? Because as you watch me, I don't want you to just cheer. He says, I'm leaving you an example that you would do just as I have done. He says that right there in the text. I'm leaving you an example. If you want to follow me, this is the kind of person you need to become. You need to be the person who takes the hit. It doesn't matter if it's a small thing or a big thing. Let me just get a little personal real quick. At our church, we love children. They're here with us, and the first song or two every Sunday is a kid's song. And every Sunday, Sarah stands up here, and she does motions, and I chuckle as I look around the room, and I, I chuckle as I think about myself. On some Sundays, I'm in the mood to play along. And the reason we ask the adults to join in the motions is because we want to show our children we're not too cool for our, our britches. You know what I mean? Like, we're still young at heart, and we're giving them the encouragement. We're with you, kids. Let's, you know, do this and do this kind of thing and this and this and this. And I, and I know what's going on in most of your hearts, especially the dudes. So stupid. Why do we do this at this church? I ain't going to do it. What's the point anyway, really? Is this going to glorify God more than doing this? You're, you're rationalizing everything in your mind, but you know what's really going on, if I could just be honest? You can't even take a little hit. This is you. Oh. You're the quarterback. That buckles. Oh, right? Why are you doing that? You can't even do motions in a children's song because you can't let your pride take that hit. Because you actually believe that everyone else in this room is just watching you. Are you going to do it? Ha, 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 loser! You're doing the kids' motion. That's what we actually think is going on. That's how big we've become in our own heads. In the grand scheme of things, humbling yourself to do children's motions is as low as it gets on the totem pole of suffering. As low as it gets. We can't even take that hit, can we? And we imagine if the North Koreans take over the America, invade us, and put people against the wall and say, renounce Christ or die, we'll be like, I will not renounce Christ, I will die. Well, no, we won't. We'll all be like, all right, good. Thanks for the loophole, dude. Where do I sign my recanting statement? Listen carefully to what we're saying here. The people who follow Jesus are the people who take the hit. Whether it's your pride, your hard-earned money, the gifts you've accrued in your life over years of training, hours of your precious time, which you've saved up so you could give to your family. And someone will come along in your life and say, you know what, I really need you to serve here. These kids need to see pictures of Christian faith that are more than six years old. They need to see a 40-year-old man making melodies, you know, you know, like, whatever. I don't, they got to see this. If they don't see that, they will say, oh, good, someday I'm going to outgrow this too. Someday I'll get to be a cool Christian who never has to act childish. 
if we're going to follow Jesus, we have to take the hit. And here's what I believe. It's, it's the heart that dies a thousand little deaths that will hang on a cross one day. It's a thousand small acts of self-denial that will one day make us like Jesus on the earth. Don't be too quick to claim that you follow Jesus. It is serving this way that identifies us with him. I said earlier in this message that uh, our world is changing. And I pray about this a lot. Maybe it's because I read the wrong kind of fiction. But the world order is changing. America's not going to be America as we've known it forever, guys. We don't have an international presence that will guarantee it. We don't have the kind of people in this country who will guarantee it. We have the most selfish generation of human beings ever born, being born right now. Your children, your little babies. Most selfish generation ever to walk the earth unless we raise them in the Lord. And if we do, we will be in the minority. And the world will be a rougher place when you're old than it is today. Many of us will grow up to see a whole different world. One that's crueler, harsher. Where things like martyrdom and persecution won't seem like faraway words in Pakistan or Egypt. They'll be right here. I can picture in my mind while I'm still alive that some of us may stand at a firing line executed simply for our faith in Jesus Christ. You think I'm kidding. But nations change like that. Just like that. Everyone's caught off guard when it happens. But Jesus has told us, in this world, you will have trouble. Take heart, I've overcome the world, and here's how you will too. Follow me. Be like me. Our generation will need to see a thousand grand acts of selfless sacrifice for God to be put on display in the world that's coming. Will we be among those who will not cave and buckle when the days of trouble come? We need to wrestle with that, don't we, a little bit. And you don't have to answer me right now, but this is the challenge I put out to us as a church. Let's pray. Thanks for listening to the sermon from Harvest Community Church. If you would like more information or have any questions or comments, check out our website at harvest-community.org. Thanks for listening.